Dispatch to unit with 1078. What's your 1020 in status? Dispatch to unit with 1078. What's your 20? Dispatch to all available units. We have a live 1078. Start proceeding. We have an officer in need of emergency assistance. Dispatch to unit with 1078. What's your 1020? Dispatch to unit 1078. What's your 20? Respond. Welcome to What's Your 20. I'm Anthony Mann. And I'm Emily Zufeld. The concept behind What's Your 20 is a mental health check-in. This isn't just for first responders and armed forces. It's for anyone who's experienced or dealt with trauma. It's going to be a look at where you've been, where you're headed, but most importantly, where are you right now? We're inviting you along to join us on this journey where we'll be navigating, managing, and living life with PTSD. I would like to start by saying thank you. Thank you for showing up. What I mean by that is over the last 20 years that we've worked together, you have always shown up. It didn't matter if it was for your own calls, as a backup for a fellow member, and currently advocating for mental health as you're still showing up for others. And in doing so, it helped me to start showing up for myself. Thank you for that. For me, it was how I got back on my feet. We've talked about the summer of 18, 2018. We lose three police officers in a very short period of time. I knew two of them. The feeling and the emotion I had, the anger, the frustration, having been through what I've personally experienced, but to, to see things get to a point where members are taking their lives and the impact not only has on, obviously, their family, but the first responder community. Enough was enough. So I, I started to talk with no intention of, I don't know what my intention was, other than to air what was on my chest, what was on my mind, in hopes that things would change. Was it also part of maybe a therapeutic process for yourself? Initially, no. As things gain momentum, if you will, I certainly found that therapy, that peace for me that I was giving back, or I hope I was, and in doing so that, you know what, I didn't go through this for nothing, and that I hope that someone can take something away from conversation, a talk, a meeting, so that this doesn't, this doesn't happen to them. This didn't start out as therapeutic for me in any way to do a podcast. In fact, I actually started out as complete terror, and we started talking. It became a necessity. And how much that the me too connection, right? How you said something that I went, oh my God, me too. And then once I said something or wrote something, there were two other people who came back and messaged me and went, oh my God, we've got the same brain. I didn't think anybody else felt that way. And so me too can actually be contagious in a positive way. We can keep bringing people along with us. Absolutely. And the, the spin on that for, for me was, was COVID. Because pre-COVID, I had opportunity to participate in a lot of different programs. COVID hit and nothing was happening. We were all being encouraged to isolate, self-isolate, you know, protect ourselves. Well, I've often said jokingly that, you know, I was isolating before. It was cool to isolate. Yeah, I was happy doing it. <laughs> you know, and I, I was very comfortable in, in my own home. But I couldn't help think about how much that peer interaction, that peer support, how influential it was on me and getting 
back to feeling good again. You throw COVID in the mix and how much of a disruption, how much interference that would have. So how do you reach people? How do you connect? But also, I remember when I first went off, puzzled and trying to get my head around all of this and what was out there. And I found myself on the internet trying to search, trying to connect, trying to just searching for that me too connection. The podcast idea was anyone can plug in anytime and have that connection. Speaking of the podcast, we are recording our premiere episode in Belleville, Ontario. A little bit about myself. When I first enrolled in college, it was here at Loyalist in the broadcast journalism program. I didn't stay at Loyalist long, and that's an entirely different story in itself. But I did end up being on the radio for the next 20 years, albeit completely different airwaves. But just the fact that we're recording our premiere episode in Belleville, it makes me feel a little like I've come full circle. I'm a 21-year member of a police service. I started on the uniform side, but shortly after transferred to communications, where I've dispatched for the remainder of my career. I've been on a journey where I had to take time away from work in order to get myself well. I can honestly say that the most difficult part for me was in having to go off work itself. I actually went to Loyalist. I'm sorry to hear that. No, uh, again, I'm joking. <laughs> I like Loyalist College. It was beautiful. I got hired right out of school. That was back in 98. You know, I look back and I've often said this, I, I look at things so differently now. And you could always say hindsight's always twenty twenty. But specifically to what I've experienced in my career as a police officer and what eventually happened to me and what I see happening to many others I see what could have been avoided, what can be prevented. We all signed up to do the job with the full expectation of seeing you know, the worst of the worst. I didn't see what was coming for me, and that was the point where I couldn't get out of bed. I didn't feel comfortable outside in social settings. I felt like I was losing traction, and that continued to deteriorate to the point where, okay, eventually uh, I went and saw my doctor. But I was too afraid to do anything further after that because of the environment and the repercussions, if you will, if word got out. And I was too hung up on, you know, what would people think mm -hmm. in that career suicide. So I, I continued to just sort of duck and weave and try and get through however long it was going to take, thinking this was all just going to pass. And it, if you faked it event enough, yeah, you'll make it. That's right. Fake okay. it till you make it. And it didn't. It just continued to weigh and weigh and weigh until the point where I had to go off. We've all had tough calls. The experience of going off work, that was the toughest part of my career, hands down. You've been an officer for 20 years? Yeah, 20 plus, yeah. Was there one call that tipped you over the edge, or was it cumulative? Things built. I remember when I first sat in with my first psychologist, and I say first because uh, she's since retired. I jokingly say I've, I forced her into retirement. I remember sitting in her office years ago. Uh, she was just you know, asking me a few questions, getting a feel, if you will, of, of what I've experienced. And she, initially, she was taking notes. And as I was rambling on, I realized that she wasn't writing anymore. She at one point interrupted me and, and said, you do realize that any one of these experiences could be the cause for anyone to have PTSD. And my response to her, yeah, but that's the job. So you felt that it was okay? You were supposed to have it? I, I didn't know what I, I was to think or, or feel because, again, that, that was the job. That's what we all signed up to do. I didn't understand 
what impact it was having on me. And I certainly didn't see at that time the impact it was having on everyone around me. I didn't ever think there was an issue with the job. That was the thing. I knew that I started to function differently, or shall I say not function. It would be the driving to and from work in tears, and then clean up your face and then go back in and nobody knew anything was wrong. Or sitting in the driveway when you get home after your 12-hour shift and not wanting to get out of the car, and then sitting there for an extra hour. When you finally go ahead and get up out of that car and go in the house, first thing you do, I did, was uh, get that glass of wine. Uh, At one point, I had my five-year-old come up to me and go, here, mommy, take your moment. And it was a fishbowl size uh, wine glass full of red wine. And from there, I looked at it in that moment. I realized this wasn't right, but it still wasn't enough to make me stop. I'd be in a bad mood. I probably wouldn't eat. And then I'd go ahead and get into bed and have to get up at 4.30 in the morning and go back and do it all again. And I was in this cyclical sickness, and I didn't know it. Every relationship around me was crumbling. I lost friends because they said, there's something wrong with you. You always bail on us. And they were right. I, there was always something wrong. Could I name it? Could I place my finger on it? Nope. Did I always bail? Yep. Did I want to go out? I did. Could I? I couldn't. I could not. My marriage was uh, not healthy in any way. I was absent. Um, came to my children. I was mad. No patience. Pissed off constantly. When I was out with people in public, I was rageful. I've cut people off. I've gotten out of my car and screamed at them. I went to a therapist to say, hey, everything's kind of falling down around me. I think maybe I should leave my husband because that seems like the sensical thing to do, right? The, if everything else is going wrong, why, why don't we add a divorce to that, right? And that's when the doctor had said to me, how's work? And I was like, how's work? And I thought he was a complete moron because I just told you I wanted to leave my husband and you're asking me about, about my job, about my work. And I remember thinking, work is the only thing that I do right. So you can't take that from me. And that's when he came back with, well, I actually think you have PTSD. And I thought it was a joke. I thought, wait a second, how could just a dispatcher have PTSD? I'm not boots on the ground. I No, no, that's not the problem. Then he's like, how do you feel about taking some time off work? And I was absolutely against it. I would not. Professional suicide. People talking about you behind your back. Is she faking it? Anything like that. I refused. Because that meant more time at home, left to my own devices, the damage that that would do. I didn't realize at the time how much suicidal ideation I had, but very much that was a part of my story. I ended up staying like that for about three months more. It just kept building until I was sent off by two doctors. And at that point, my very first day off work was in residential treatment. They were instrumental in helping me still be here. We asked, is there one incident or is it a cumulative? And for me, it was a cumulative, as were the signs and the symptoms. If I were to look back, I was always tired, wasn't Mm -hmm. sleeping well. Well, we're shift workers. Or you're on call. That's, or you're a parent of young children. You got small kids in the house. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, you work a night shift, you come home, like, how are you going to sleep? Or you catch a few hours sleep or, or you had a busy night and you're so, you come home and you're just so jacked up on adrenaline, like it's hard to get to sleep. So I didn't really think much of it because I'm tired. I'm moody. I'm restless. 
And okay, so I'm having some drinks to help settle myself. I'm angry or I seem angry or I'm having uh, outbursts. Again, that pattern is, start, is building and I didn't see it. For those close to me, they didn't see it either because they didn't know. They just thought I was being that guy, Hank. Hank. Hank, that's what I've labeled him when I'm like that. And that just festered. And then the physicalities came. Body pain, you know, waking up in the morning, feeling like I'd been in a fight the night before, getting sick. What was interesting with that is if I was off for my days off, I would settle. I wasn't getting sick at home. But as soon as it came time to go back to work, I was getting sick before work, at work. It got to the point where things got uh, very challenging for me because it was very challenging to disguise it. I still remember going to one scene. I felt like I was losing touch with my surroundings. I, and I, I, I knew enough to get back to my car. And I got inside the car and I just started to shake horribly to the point where I'm sure it felt like it must have been noticeable if you were looking at my cruiser. It must have been shaking. If you looked at those symptoms individually, ah, I just got muscle pains. But looking back now again through a different lens, yeah, there was all kinds of sign early on that had I known, had we known, and accept the fact that, you know what, yeah, this is a very normal reaction. It's a very human reaction to trauma. It's a very normal reaction to abnormal sights, sounds, calls, anything, right? Absolutely. But we forget that. I think you've done this several times. You excuse it by saying, it's the job. It's what we signed up to do. So just because you signed up to do it doesn't mean that it doesn't affect you. Let's face it. As first responders in related fields, we normalize the abnormal. I've often said this. Think back to what we did for work before we got in the field we're in. What was your, you know, the worst thing that happened at work? A paper jam with the printer? And I don't say that to lighten other, other fields, but when we don't get calls where people are inviting us over to tell us how good their day was, mm-hmm. it's because everything's gone sideways in the world and we're there to put the pieces back together. And those sights, those sounds, those smells, they are things that you can't unsee, unsmell, unhear. And they stick with you and to a point where, in some cases, they can haunt you. When you talk about the body pain, I would not have known that there was a lot of major issues with me unless my body started telling me. I happen to be one of those who has a great deal of somatic symptoms. So soma meaning body, so somatic being of the body. And I started with my abdomen. I couldn't eat anything. The minute it went in that my abdomen swelled. I looked pregnant every meal, so then I couldn't eat anymore. I had a lot of digestive issues. I went from there with sleep issues, and I would lose my hands. I call it losing a body part, and it would happen where my hands were numb. I would lose portions of my face. I would lose a leg. I lost the feeling of my right leg from the knee down for eight months. I was in bed for eight months. I was doing CT scans, MRIs. I had surgeries to check my intestines. You name it, they ran the gambit of tests because they were trying to find what was wrong with me. And what it was is my body had said, enough, enough. And it checked out. 
They thought I had ALS. They thought I had MS. You name it. I didn't. It ended up being PTSI in the form of PTSD. And people say, well, that's what you signed up for. You know what? I don't regret any of the experiences I've had as a police officer. Someone had sat me down as a recruit many years ago and said to me, you know, you're going to find yourself in situations where they're going to call you everything but a police officer. Yeah, I know. You're going to see some horrific incidents. Yep. You might get a punch in the face, right? Someone might try and take your life. Things that we were already preparing for and training for. And I felt ready for that. You said, where do I sign? Where do I sign? (laughs) Yeah. Right? I'm good to go. And I was. But what I wasn't prepared for was not being able to sleep at night, getting sick. You you talk about, you know, I I was scoped three or four times again, investigatively trying to figure out what was going on with my digestive system, the body pain. I was at a point where I was grinding my teeth so bad in my sleep that I partially dislocated my jaw. These aren't the things I signed up for. I've always been healthy, fit, active, and social. And this certainly, it didn't interrupt it. It disrupted my life. Speaking of other things we didn't sign up for, when I first came on the job, I was planning on having a full career as a police officer. That did not take place due to certain items that changed that path. And what I mean by the things you sign up for were, yes, I'm going to be in danger. I'm going to perhaps get a punch in the face. I'm going to get dragged by a car, maybe. Like you you signed up for that. What I didn't recognize is that the people that I thought would hurt me most were the ones inside the office as well. Those people that are supposed to have your back, those people that they swear they'd never leave a man behind the supervisors who are supposed to lead and look out for you. But instead, they're the ones that abandon you because they don't know how to deal with you because you're now the problem child. And it's an interesting topic and a topic in itself because I really look at it from what I've experienced and from what those who have shared with me over the years is really a further challenge in our our line of work with, we're definitely talking about the elephant that's in the room. There's a lot of people out there that in our field that have this and they don't know or they don't want to go there for whatever reason. And I respect that because I didn't want to go there myself. There was one particular experience where, you know what? Guilty. I was I was that person that turned their back on another member. We've stayed in contact since. I remember apologizing for that. They were good with it and, and certainly didn't need the apology. But I get it. It's awkward. And this, what do you say? And if you do say anything or do anything, is it going to upset person more? At the end of the day, this seems to be a real buzz about mental health and wellness in the first responder community. And this injury and those alike, it's nothing new. No. What was it called? Um, a breakdown, a midlife crisis, yep. burnout. And honestly, that's what I thought I was going through initially was burnout. Right? Okay. I was tired and unhappy. but. Much to my surprise, it was much more than that when I got the one-two punch of you know PTSD and major depression. Didn't see that coming. Where I go, was going with that is this injury has been around in our line of work for many years. It's just lurked in the weeds or hidden behind. And I've said it time and time again, the alcoholism, substance abuse, the unhealthy relationships, the misconduct. And is it an excuse for the behavior? Absolutely not. But does it give some type of explanation? Absolutely. I know for myself, I was very fortunate, very lucky, but for some, it just complicated their already complicated situation. 
I am one who never wanted to disclose to anybody what was going on with me. I never wanted anyone to think I was crazy, that uh, I had my shit together, that I was okay. And I hid. I felt um, I was an imposter. I, it was, I was a complete imposter because I had nothing together. I knew that there was things going on with me. And yet I refused to go ahead. I'd name it, say it, disclose it. There was a couple items that were happening in my personal life. Those, some of those moments, which are everyday, regular, unfortunately, regular moments in people's lives. There was an accident in the family. There was cancer. There was child loss. There were all of these items that were going on. And I recall needing some time off to take care of some of those items. And my supervisor said to me, there's always something with you, isn't there, Emily? There's always something. And that crushed me because he was right. There was always something. There, yep, I got cancer. Yep, I lost a baby. And yep, um, there's, a, there's an accident in the family. And you're right, there is always something. But it made me feel so ashamed. I felt like I was a problem. I felt like I, I was a, it was an embarrassment that, oh my God, he's right. I, do I attract all this drama? Is this my fault? And so I did things where I lived with cancer on the job for a year leading up to it. I worked and kept it quiet. I don't know how many people do that, but I wore myself out more because I was going to prove to you I'm a valuable, good employee, and I'm not going to let whatever is on the sideline here, I'm not going to let you see that anymore. I'm not going to, because you know what? I'm good. I have worth because I'm at work. And that's what I would do. I would show you my worth and that I'm not a problem. And guess what? Even though these things are going on, I'm not going to let that be the focus so that my workplace and my supervisors and my coworkers don't think that I'm a mess. But you know what? Life still happens. Regardless of when you plug in, you put that uniform on, you're still human. You mm -hmm. still have life outside of work, or you should. What do they talk about, that life-work balance? Yeah. There's no such thing. And, and, it, and it's very challenging at the best of time. But in order to perform at the level in which is expected of us, something's got to give up to have that, I, say, I guess, self-reflection. Because for myself, I was good. Busier, the better. The bigger the calls, the more exciting things were, the more things I enjoyed. And stuff happened outside of work, too, in my, in my life. And, and again, that's just life. Mm -hmm. It was all good. But the, real, the reality for me was that is life. That is life as a first responder. However, in order to have a healthy life, you need to be able to manage. That is what I, I didn't receive early on. You mean training? Training, education. Preventative measures. To me, if you're intervening, it's too late in the sense that individuals already been bit by this. And, and not to dwell on the past because that's exactly what it is, the past. But here we are now knowing what we know, what are we doing about it? Talk is cheap. What are we putting in place mm -hmm. to ensure that this doesn't continue? Because I equate it to swimming to ensure that people have the basic skills, knowledge, and experience on how to swim before they jump in the river. Because when they're downstream and already struggling to swim, it's too late. It's impacted them when it could have been avoided. I had an opportunity to talk with some, some first responders that had just been through a critical situation and they were all, uh, all junior. My takeaway from that opportunity to, to speak with them was, for me, was a huge reflection. I saw myself in every one of those individuals, and to turn back the clock, I would have said the same thing they had said. I'm good. 
I'm fine. And honestly, I don't ever remember. That's not true. I was asked once after a high-risk situation how I was doing, but I never participated in any briefings or debriefings afterwards or any check-ins per se. If I had been asked, I would have said I was fine because I thought I was. Fast forward to more recent years, a lot of my heavy lifting or work in therapy was based on a lot of those experiences that I had early on in my career. Again, not knowing of some of the signs or things to look for or to do following that type of event. Well, we've gone ahead and we've spent 20 years doing, not feeling. That's right. We're not meant to feel on the job. We're meant to get shit done. Yep. So all of a sudden, when things are breaking down and we're meant to feel now, you think as a society, we actually place weight on feelings because we'll ask people, how are you? How are you feeling? And we ask the question. And then the answer that comes back, we want them to actually say, fine. We want people to say, oh, I'm good. I'm okay. And do you know why? Because if somebody said, oh, I'm sad, I'm suicidal, I'm angry, I can't get out of bed today, that means we would have to actually stop. We would actually have to take time and actually go, oh, I was on my way out the door. Crap, now I got to turn around and actually pay attention and go, if I'm any sort of a decent human being, that's what I should be doing. So let's take some time and let's address this. But we don't have the time. We don't want to take the time. So then we hope that they say fine. And if we're afraid they don't, we just stop asking now. We just stop asking, how are you doing? Because a lot of the times the people who are depressed with anxiety and have PTSD, their answers are more feeling invoked now. If they're doing the work, how are you doing today? Well, I can tell you I had a shit week, an absolute shit week. It was full of emotion. I had, I had a counseling session and then I had an occupational therapy session where I'm doing exposure therapy. It took me back to the beginning, the very beginnings of my job and the amount of emotion that came out of sitting in a parking lot beside my old detachment, sobbing and what comes up from that. And then in bed for the next two days because of the emotion and the exhaustion that that took from me. And then I have no patience. I'm yelling at my kid. And that happened this week. And you actually spoke to me and you said, hey, how are you doing? And my answer to you was, I'm moving furniture. And you said, no, no, I asked, how are you doing? And I said, I just told you I'm moving furniture. And what did you say to me? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) You said to me, you can't bullshit a bullshitter. (laughs) This is right. So that's what you said. You cannot bullshit a bullshitter. But even though you and I are in a place where we can be honest with each other, I still wasn't able to say to you, I'm having a shit week. It's awful. And because I knew that if maybe I entered that conversation, I might have gotten emotional. And not only that, I don't want to burden you. So that Mm -hmm. if I say to you, I'm not doing so great, then that means I'm going to have to take up some of your time or you're going to feel obligated to go, okay, I'll sit and listen to you. And so because of these exchanges, yeah, we place all these, the, the weights on feelings, but we don't follow through with it. And that's what we need to do. We actually have to be genuine and authentic in our question to say, hey, how are you doing? How are you feeling? And actually, when they say an answer, listen to it and then lean into that answer. Okay, you're sad. Okay, I may not be able to change why you're sad, but I'm here to listen about why you are. You know, it's it's funny. The field we're in will drop everything. We'll deploy all kinds of resources to go help a complete stranger. Yes. What would the person standing with you? Yeah. 
or the person who used to stand with you is at home right now. That's right. We need to lift them up. Yeah. We've gone ahead and we have taken the concerns of complete strangers so carefully, so intunely, so importantly, that we didn't listen to our own concerns as well as those beside us. Yeah. And that's got to change. To some degree, it has or is, but we're not there yet. We're not, in my opinion, for what that's worth, but it's not normal yet. I brought up this uh, concept of the secret society and that we're all a part of it. The, the members who are off, the members who are still on, uh, who aren't doing well, the ones who have a diagnosis of PTSD, the ones who don't, but they're just sad and depressed and full of anxiety. We're the secret society and we lock it down. We're so secret that the person sitting beside us, across from us, that we work with doesn't have a clue how we're feeling or that we're a member of the same society. Well, and I call it wearing the mask, right? Right. And I wore it well. I remember, so I was diagnosed and then it wasn't until about three years after I went off work, I was at a point where I had to go off. I remember that summer, it was the summer of 16, and I remember who called or who stopped by, who was genuine and who was fishing for information. No one knew. No one had any idea. I had my shit locked away, squared away, but to my own demise. People don't realize what I'm off for. The original cancer was removed. There was a possibility it was back. And I was going for tests. And I was hoping, and I'm, I'm so embarrassed and so ashamed of myself right now to say this, but I was hoping that the cancer was back. And that at least that way, I had something tangible, something you could, something that someone could understand that that is worth being off for. And when the thank God, now, when the second scans came back, they were clear. So my cancer hadn't returned. I sobbed in my therapist's office. And he's like, this is good news. Why are you so upset? And I'm like, because now I've got nothing to show for why I'm off. Now it's not this, it's actually my head. It's my brain. The fact that I wanted to have cancer more than I wanted to have PTSD. And that is a horrible, horrible sign of how people are feeling. The fact that people would rather kill themselves than tell what's going on or go get that help. That is what's going on. And yourself, I mean, you ended up with an injury. Soon after I went off work, one of the best things happened to me and that was I busted my hip. Mm -hmm. You had something tangible. I didn't have to come up with excuses or reasons as to why I wasn't at work anymore. That led up to that, that slip and fall, that injury. You know, what was funny was a lot of the questions when people approach me, hey, what happened to you? They thought it was relative to work. And they were hoping for that exciting police chase, fight, whatever story. And they didn't get it. It was a simple slip and fall. <laughs> and, and I'm laughing because you're a former hockey player. Well, it is. So, you know, the, the background is, is my doc at the time was really trying to encourage me. Okay, I had just gone off work and... You know, he, again, encouragement, you got to get outside. You got to get doing things you enjoy doing or once enjoyed doing. What I ended up doing, ironically, at the time was uh, helping my son's hockey team in a practice. Coach had asked me to help out. I, I was skating backwards. And again, I've skated all my life. But I stepped and slipped on a puck, landed <laughs> flat on my ass. Surgery that night, three nights in hospital. But again, I was able to come out of the hospital with something that see, people could see. The injury was a blessing in disguise. I had to move. I had I had to do my rehab when I was given the green light to do so and get to the gym to get strong again. There was 
there was an acceptance. Acceptance. They just saw the physical injury. That only lasted for a few months. And then I had the same routine down. I wasn't just trying to fix my hip now. I was fixing my head. Yeah. Some people didn't know any different. And I, I again, I, at that time, I wasn't, I wasn't very open. There was a very small number of people that knew what was going on with me. There's no shame in this. Well, we didn't do it to ourselves. No. We didn't ask for it. There's not always something. We didn't choose this. Yep. When we talk about hiding it, I remember keeping it from my family. Of course, the only one who knew was my husband. Uh, and I tried to hide it from the kids. I tried to hide it from family. And I remember uh, a family member saw me at one of these um, family events. Uh, it was an anniversary, and I kind of felt like I had to show. And this family member said, so what's going on? And I said, uh, with what? What's going on? You seem to be showing up uh, at things on weekends. Aren't you supposed to be working? And I was found out. I was terrified. So I stopped showing up at events then, because then I didn't have to answer questions. But the time, that was one of the worst for me. Like, I have to set this scene for you. It's um, Now it's quite comical, but then it was terrorizing. It's 5 a.m., the sun's coming up. I'm outside in uh, in flip-flops and a leopard print house coat in my driveway pacing, holding my head. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty. But I was literally holding my head, sobbing and pacing. And I stayed out there for probably about an hour and a half trying to calm down, trying to stop the anxiety. And I couldn't. And it felt like I, I was going to die. Or the only way to stop it was to die. And I didn't know how to stop it. I lost track of the time. And what happened was my daughter walked outside to get the bus. And there my daughter sees me in this shape, me holding my head crying. And I looked at her and she looked at me and I saw myself back in her eyes and I couldn't hide it anymore. The fear and the confusion on her face, I went up to her and I said, I'm sorry. I apologized to her. I didn't want you to see this. And then I said, I'm not doing well. And that's all I could muster that day. My daughter was old enough that I was able to start being honest with her and sharing some of the information with her. Now, with my daughter's permission, I can tell you my daughter has anxiety. So what type of a mother am I to hide what I have rather than to show her how to manage it so that she's not alone? What type of mother am I if I am going to be ashamed and hide myself if I want her to be open? So my daughter doesn't need me to come and save her. My daughter needs me to save myself. It's a skill set now. It is. And now when my daughter has anxiety, she calls me and we can talk because I actually have therapy behind me. And I can say, it's normal. It's okay. And we're going to have to adapt. She's going on to university and this is going to get bigger. And you're going to have moments that are huge, but you're going to get through them and you're going to be okay. I didn't know that then. I also didn't have anybody to walk with me and say, you're going to be okay. This is this is kind of normal. You have to learn to sit with it until it passes, right? Or maybe you need medication. Or maybe you need to go to residential treatment. Maybe you need to go to a retreat. Maybe you need to be a part of a group of people that share the same thing so that you feel normal. So now my daughter and I talk about anxiety openly. My youngest He doesn't have a lot of anxiety, but as the waves rise in the house, you see the younger children shift. 
if you're emitting anxiety, if you're emitting anger, if you're emitting sadness, that energy goes out through the home and the people in our home walk through that. The adults might be able to deal with it or express it with their own anger, their own coping skills or mechanisms, but the children can't. They can't explain what's going on, yet they're eating it up too. Well, and concerning is if the kids aren't made aware, the first thing they're going to think of or can't think of is the reason why, why mom or dad is not happy is because of, of them, of them yeah. something they did or didn't do, which is completely false. You know, I know my kids, they've seen it, you know, when dad gets quiet, stay away from the bear. And that's just as concerning for me with this injury. And when it comes to awareness is that this rubs off on those that you are closest with, mm-hmm. the people you go home to. It certainly has an impact on them. But at the same time, can you manage it? Yes. Can it be prevented? I'm going to challenge you. Yes, it can. I'd like to see that. The resources are great. Supports are great. But how we operate, I think, is the real challenge. You and I have had this conversation before that once you have this injury, you and I have a belief this doesn't go away. This is with you. Yep. And I'll, you know, I, I've I've heard people that I'm recovered and that's fantastic. I, I guess I'm still on the road to recovering. I really, I'll challenge the, the term recovering with the term management. It's no different than to me getting a concussion. The damage is already done. It's what you do moving forward that's going to help you live healthier. If you're going to continue to be put yourself in a position where you are going to be vulnerable to concussions, the greater the risk it is to your health. Professional sports is seeing that in the last 10, 15 years now and with the different protocols and safeties they've put in place for their, their athletes because of the impact it has on them. Do I think in our field similar mechanisms should be in place? Absolutely. To ensure that we're putting out healthy people. And if there is something going on that it's identified early on so we can have it addressed in the sense of those those resources so that we can get them to a healthy place first and foremost. And if we get them to a place where they can get back to doing what they want to do or can do, which is what I really miss. I've had to struggle with the fact that I can't go back to doing what I used to do. Just not a healthy fit. Too much of a risk. But I look at that also as if I had done something early on, the likelihood of me doing what I used to do, which was signing up, catching bad guys, going to those big calls, I'd still be doing it. But that's, that for me, that ship is sailed. So how do we keep things on track for the next generation? How do we help them finish the way they started? Normalizing it. Normalizing it. Talking about it, not being a secret society, but being transparent. Talking about feelings. Which is weird. The way we, we train for those calls, there is no room for feeling. There, you're, you're switched on, locked on, dialed in, however you want to call it, professional. You're in the moment. You're the go-to for the people that are in crisis. But it's to shed light on the importance that after the call, aside from getting all the things that we need to complete completed, it's also a crucial that you take time as an individual to check in yourself and to normalize it. Like I, in the sense that we all have people we go to for our haircut or hairstyle, right? We all have our massage therapist, chiropractor, physiotherapist. I wish I'd early on checked in with a psychologist or a mental health professional just to the very least form that baseline. This is Anthony. This is where I'm at now. You know, this is what I just been through. Just, it's just a check-in, an open conversation. Now, I will go back to that time and said, well, what the hell would they know about the job we do or this, what we see? 
boy, was I surprised in that how much of an understanding our medical professionals do have. But I also think it's key that if you're looking for to speak with someone, that they have that experience of working with first responders and military, because some don't. The fact that you're sourcing someone that has that that understanding, that background is is huge. Again, forming that baseline so that you can get that off your chest. And if, if it is eating away at you, if there's something that can be done early on, get it done so it doesn't fester. Well, we're going to play a little game. Okay, fast and furious. <laughs> what we're going to do in order for us to get to know each other a little better and our listening audience to get to know us a little better, we've got about 10 questions. We're going to fire them off fast, and I want you to answer them uh, with either one word or a brief sentence, okay? Go. Are you ready? <laughs> you already said go before I said, are you ready? So when I say fear, what do you think? Anger. Say, what's your favorite movie? That's a tough one. Uh, Goodfellas. What do people most get wrong about you? That I'm uh, not happy. What are you grateful for? My family. What would be a profession if you weren't an officer? Hockey player. <laughs> Typical Canadian yeah, kid. Yeah, nothing's changed. Favorite food? Steak. What is your trigger or one of them? One of my triggers. Alarms. Unexpected sound. If someone were to describe you in a kind way, what would they say about you? The kid's got heart. If someone was to describe you in a negative way? He's an asshole. <laughs> what is... This is going to throw you completely off. What's your favorite flower? Wow. Poppy. Oh, that's a good one. Out of respect. So let's, uh, let's change things up. You ready? Never, but go ahead. Favorite food? Oh, shit. Everything. Um, okay, no, no, give me a second. I love eating. It has to be steak, medium rare, that the fat is still on it, and because it's the flavor, and you bite into it and eat it all. All right, type of music. Um, indie rock. Dream vacation. Greece. Water, ocean. What was your first car? Oh, I had an 81 Camaro with a T-top. <laughs> Charcoal in color with burgundy leather seats. Sweet. You didn't expect that, did you? No. Next. Worst job. I actually had to wash toilets. Biggest regret. Not going to uh, journalism school. Favorite sport. To watch or to play. I'll leave it up to you. I love the Olympics. and That's timely because it's on with our Paralympics right now. Playing. You know what? I love badminton. <laughs> what? I got, I won the officer. <laughs> I did. I didn't realize I was sitting across with champ. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> awesome. A life turning point. Watching your webinar. Thank you. Favorite concert? You would have to be Sting when he played with an orchestra. Last question. Mm. What's your sign? I am a Leo. I am the type of Leo that likes to like rip someone's head off, eat what's inside, have the blood dripping down my chin, and look you in the eyes and smile about it. I do lion shit. <laughs> That's the type of Leo I am. <laughs> now you tell me. <laughs> I'm inviting you to come back for our next episode as we are honored to have an amazing human, London Police Sergeant Andrew Goff and his beautiful service dog Riggs as our first guests. Known nationally, Sergeant Goff's contributions and advocacy for mental health are more than changing the landscape on how PTSIs, OSIs, and PTSD is being viewed. Sergeant Goff and Riggs certainly caught our attention, so we're more than sure that they'll catch yours too. Anthony and I want to keep the conversation going. You can follow us, comment, and message on our Instagram and Facebook pages. We'd also love to hear from you, so send us an email. You can drop us a line at info at whatsyour20.com, and that's 20, T-W-E-N-T-Y. 
be sure to listen to, follow, and subscribe to the What's Your 20 podcast so that you can get every show as soon as it's released. We can be found wherever you get your podcasts.